Welcome to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. We want to be a place where you can own your faith and take next steps in your relationship with Jesus. Maybe your next step is to seek out community and join a movement group. Maybe it's supporting movement financially for the first time or using your gifts on a volunteer team. Whatever God is calling you to do, our prayer is that you will step out in faith and let Him lead you. For more information about your next step, please visit movementcolumbus.com. Hey, Movement Church. I'm so glad you're joining us today as we finish up our series called You Can't Have It All. And uh, it's our fourth week. The first week we we talked about really what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And uh, the language we used was apprenticing him. And then uh, the last two weeks, we spent some time kind of unpacking what some spiritual blockades have been in our faith that, that really kind of move us away from Jesus and our intimacy with him. Uh, we talked about hurry and the, the, how that can cause problems in our busyness and uh, really rush us and not be able to be present. And then we also talked about contentment and uh, the, the lack of the ability to be content and be constantly want more and want more things, more, more love, more uh, money and whatever it may be. And so uh, today I want to talk about the last, uh, the last of this series, and uh, it, uh, when we can start talking about it, I don't think you'll be super surprised. In fact, at some point you might want to just turn off the TV. Um, and uh, but I want to give you some some clarity on this topic. I notice that it, it's it's serious, and we must take it to heart. In fact, in the four Gospels of Jesus, the stories of Jesus, ten percent of all of the verses talk about this specific topic that we're going to talk about. In uh, Jesus' thirty-eight parables, sixteen of them refer to this topic. And in the entire narrative of the Bible, there's 500 verses on prayer. There's less than 500 about faith. And there's more than 2000 about this topic. So this is all throughout the Bible. It's clearly important. And uh, maybe you've already figured it out. Maybe you kind of have an idea, but uh, I want to move into a passage. We'll talk about it and you'll figure it out as we go. But I'd love for you to turn to Matthew chapter six. If you notice, this is a part of what is called the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is essentially Jesus giving a a longer message to his disciples. And then the backdrop of them is a bunch of people that are listening. And and what what the foundation of it is, is really this statement that he says several times. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, blank. And what he's doing is he's he's pulling all the stuff they had known and he's calling them to something deeper and much greater. That that he is the the, the fulfillment of that into something much greater. And uh, I think the best analogy for this if you're a math fan, this is like the one time I think I'll ever talk about math in a sermon, but here you go. Here's your chance. It's like math. You, you Maybe I remember growing up in eighth grade and I, I started this thing called algebra and found out, you know what, maybe it is math. It, it, it has some letters, which is weird, but it still seems like it's math. And then they're like, you know what, this is so in, uh, so ridiculous that we're going to make you take two years of it. And so I took over two. And then the year after that, they have this crazy, wicked thing called geometry. And it's like, man, eh, like algebra with, with shapes and in, I don't know, segments of things. And, and then as if that wasn't bad enough and that wasn't weird enough, then they make up this math, I swear it's made up, it's not real, called trigonometry. In trigonometry, I can't even tell you what the difference between geometry, I think it's like more hard math. But anyways, I did, I took it, trigonometry. And so a lot of us, we stopped there, right? We graduate high school and we're like, oh, praise the Lord, I am done with math for the rest of my life. Some of you may have went to college and you didn't, you didn't have to take it and you're like, yes. But there's some of us, like myself, that entered into the dark depths of the math world. And if you know what I'm talking about, it was the next step on the math ladder to the dark depths, and it is calculus. Now, if you've taken calculus, 
you just know. I think there's it's it's a it's a following of people that just get it. Calculus is ridiculous for two reasons. The first is that it is essentially like you're learning another language. You're like, oh, I took Spanish in high school. You see, I took calc. It's the same thing. Calculus is legitimately a language. It's its own thing. You start looking at it and you're like, this doesn't make any sense. The second reason why calculus is, is ridiculous is because it requires you to know everything else at a proficient level in order to do it. Meaning that if you slacked off in geometry in ninth grade because you're a freshman and you don't care about things, it's going to affect you when you take calculus. If you want to be good at calculus, you have to be good at algebra, geometry, whatever trigonometry is, you got to be good at all of them. And in the same way, the Sermon on the Mount is this. Jesus is saying, hey, you took all these maths, you understand algebra, whatever, this is the law you give. But now I'm calling you something much deeper, much greater, and it culminates all of it together. It's an important kind of um, holistic understanding. And yes, it is math, even though it's way different than what I'm saying. For example, he says, hey, you know what? Some of you might know, like, the physical act of a sin, you steal something with your hand, is wrong. But I'd actually say, even in your heart, if you thought that, if you wanted to steal that, if you wanted to take something from someone else, that is a sin. He pulls it much deeper into calculus. And he says, hey, you know what? Uh, let's say that you love people. Great. Okay, even the worst of people love some people, especially those who are like them. I'm telling you, you know what? Love everyone. Love the enemies, the people that you really have a hard time loving that are frustrating. That you don't even deserve your love. Love those people. That's the calculus of love. Then he talks about, hey, maybe you've been wrong. Maybe something's been unfair. Maybe there's been an injustice in your life, and you should have the right to retaliate. Well, I'm going to let God handle that, and you're just going to love them in the process. You're going to pursue peace and remediation. And he's basically just calling us to just this deeper, deeper transformation of following him. That when we apprentice Jesus, that we become more and more like him in our journey. And in Matthew 6, we're going to get into another area of our life that I believe that we are never done growing in, that we constantly have to reevaluate and think through the lens of Christ. And uh, in this passage, we're going to talk about money. So if you would like to stay on TV with me, that would be the most kind. Hopefully don't drop off here. Um, But we're going to read Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. It says, Don't store up treasures here on earth, where moths eat them and rust destroys them, and where thieves break in and they steal. Instead, store your treasures in heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart is also, your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light, if, and if you, the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. No one can serve two masters. For you'll hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve and be in God and be enslaved to money. And so what Jesus is here is he's saying, hey, here's money, here's God. You can't serve both of these with a full heart. You, you can't say, well, I want my money piece, I want my God piece, and I'll just, I'll just, you know, I'll serve two different kingdoms. Or you, you'll even maybe say, you know what, I'm going to jump down Jesus lane, and I'm just going to attach a little bit of my own personal success along with that, and we'll just kind of ride those together. He's saying, no, like, those, are, those are incompatible. You can't, you can't love both of these. And you might ask, well, what does it mean to love money? And it, I'm not here to give you a rigid, this is a percent you give here, and this is the money you give away. What I'm here to say is, honestly, it's like, how, what's your desires of your heart? A modern way to say that, he says, where your treasures is, there your heart will be also. The modern way to say it is, where your checking account statement is, there your heart will be also. It's funny, it's like, oh, but that's really true. Like, if you had the ability and you were like vulnerable enough, be like, hey, Trey, here's my checking account. I could, other than your bills, utilities, whatever, I could probably figure out, oh, wow, you really love Starbucks. Oh, wow, like you go to Target way too much. 
whatever it may be. I can see the desires of your heart, just like you can see mine. And we have to be honest in evaluating. Jesus says these two are incompatible. The desire of our heart can either be God or it can be money. It doesn't mean that we just, oh, I don't need money. I'm not going to have money. I'm not going to have a job. I'm not going to have a house. I'm not going to have anything. That's a little bit too far. But what he is saying is that the lens at which you see things, that lens is, is honestly our generosity. That, that if we have a pink lens in our eyes, everything we see is pink. If we are really loving money, everything that we do will be consumed by money, whether we like it or not. And he says, the worst of you are the people who think you're light, but you're really in the dark. He said, how terrible of a darkness is that? Now, I know a lot of you maybe have had bad experiences with the church and money, or you, you know, you've given this nonprofit and you found out a penny of your dollar went to what you actually thought it would go to, or you found out that this church secretary was embezzling money, or or this pastor makes $500,000 a year. And you you might, I don't want to talk about money in church ever. I think they're a bunch of corrupt people. I am not here to talk about that. What I'm here to talk about is the words of Jesus. And what I want you to do is try to weed through maybe the trauma, the hurt and suffering that you've experienced with that. And I'm not here to say it didn't happen. It's not real. But I think we we need to realize today that that Jesus is talking about money, that it's important to him, that it should be important to us. It's the narrative of the Bible. that We can't escape it. I can't not talk about money because it's literally everywhere in the Bible. And, uh, and this is going to bring us to our series is that we, we realize in this statement, you can't serve God and be enslaved to money, is that we can't have it all. You just can't have it all. You cannot serve both God and money. You'll love one, you'll hate the other. It's funny because if I had a dollar for every time I heard this, you know, a follower Jesus say, hey man, you can't serve God, you can't serve money. And then later that day, I hear their plan about how in their 30s or 40s, they want to be a millionaire and they want to be able to not have to work and they want to be a great father, great dad, and be present and do the do the things they want to do, uh, I'd be a millionaire. I, I, I've heard the story so many times. And what they really want to do is they want to, they want God and they want their own kingdom and they want to put them in tandem and they want to say, like, we're like, oh yeah, I'm following God, but I want my business to like really be like in part of that. And, and what happens is this plan includes them most likely working 60 to 80 hours a week, neglecting their community, their loved ones, and family. Uh, it includes them trying to leverage relationships with people for clients and money and, and business and, uh, and I'm just going to say, this is, this is not the way of Jesus. This is not what it means to apprentice Jesus. Because you don't take a pause of your following of Jesus to, to pursue it in the future when things are better. Meaning that you don't wait, well, when I'm in my 30s, then I'll really give. I'll be out of debt. I'll, uh, I'll have be a high-paying job. I won't be in my current circumstance. I already have my boat. I'll be able to give then. That's actually completely counterintuitive what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, no, in your instance now, what is your call in your heart of following him to be deeper and deeper in, in generosity. And, and it's not to wait till a point where we're better. It's actually now. And, and I'm not here to tell you how much it should be, what it should be, where it should be. I'm just here to show you, I think Jesus is saying, this isn't something that we can just wait. We don't give a decade of our life to loving money and then all of a sudden say, we're going to love God now. That's not how it works. And Jesus is concerned with this. He's not saying get rid of money completely. He, he had, they had to buy things. Uh, like he had stuff. He actually worked a job for 30 years and made money, income, like he did. Um, and so like, there's that part of that. But it's money is more about being a tool or a resource than it is being this trophy that we strive for that, that skews our lens in the way that we see things. Uh, and you think about it, like money is powerful. Like, you, you can't deny that. If you look at the top grossing industry, it's the sex industry, and they make a ton of money. Think about sports. That's a huge money maker. Think about social media. All they're doing is getting your ads, trying to have you buy stuff. Money is power. And at this time, they absolutely knew it because 
at the Roman time, the way they would do things is they go to a small town or area or country and they'd say, hey, uh, we're not going to kill you if you give us taxes. And that's how Rome became so powerful because they had so much wealth. They were a huge military. It seemed like they were generous. And they used the money as power. Money has power. And the thing is, Jesus knows this. He knows that money is captivating people's hearts at this time. He calls a tax collector to his disciples. And he even uses a parable. The parable is in Matthew 13. He says, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is like a treasure. It's like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. And in his excitement, he hid it again, sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field where the treasure was. He says later, it's like a pearl. It's like, it's like a merchant on the lookout for great pearls. When he discovers this pearl, he sold everything he owned and he bought it. When we get a glimpse of the kingdom of God, we, we, we should really be asking ourselves, what needs to go so that I can have it? What do I need to abandon in my life so that I can have it? And that's what taking up your cross means. Dying yourself, taking up your cross, is denying all of your things, everything you have, and giving it to Jesus and saying, I want it. I want to sell it all for it. And like I said, it doesn't mean that you just sell everything, your house, your clothes. If you have a family that you just abandon the providing of them for them and things like that. But what we realize is that when we follow Jesus, we are called to potentially give up everything. It's not that we necessarily will, but if someone was to take all of your money or a lot of your stuff, would you be willing to do that for the sake of Christ? Would you be willing to do that? Not it would have happened, but that's the, that's the type of questions that get in our heart of generosity. Are we willing to lose those things or are they secure? We, we become anxious. Are we worried? Where is our heart really lying in the midst of that? And this is what plays into apprenticing Jesus, like we talked about in the first week. There's three parts of apprenticing Jesus. The first is that we be with Jesus. And if you realize, if we're with Jesus, we're in his presence. If we even read the scriptures about Jesus, that he talks about money a lot, that he knows being generous is, is a part of the kingdom of God. If we become like him, the second one, that means that the more we become like him, the more that we'll have his teaching, his posture, and his understanding of what it means to be generous, that we give to those who are needy. We spend time and energy with those who need it. And the third one is that, that he would do, uh, that, that he would do, uh, we think about what, we, what would he do if he were us? Um, and and, and if, if Jesus were me and where I live with my house and my family and the money that I make that God has given me, what do I do with that? What, what would Jesus be doing with that? Where would he be giving his money? How would he be seeing money in terms of his life? And those are the three things that we, we, we translate into apprenticing him because it's a part of following Jesus. Generosity is it's the heart of the gospel. We think about what is the cross? What is Jesus dying for us? What is the good news? The good news is that a God who didn't have to gave his life up generously for an undeserving people like us. That they didn't have to do that. That's the root of the gospel, the generosity. So from that outflowing of that, a love for us, we then love others with the same generous heart that we want to help people see the kingdom of God here and now where we are in the same way that we've experienced it in the love of God. That's why Jesus talks about money. That's why he uses parables because it attaches to the power of things that we see around us. And and I think a lot of us need reframing around this. Maybe we've been grown up in church. We've, we've heard the word tithe, that we've, we've thought, well, I give 10% and I just do that till I die. And, and a little bit of background on tithe. Tithe is, is not a New Testament thing. It's actually an Old Testament thing. And it was created for the Israelites. See, there was 12 tribes and God gave 11 of them land to, to, to sow and to, to make crops and cattle and all that. And then the 12th tribe, he put in charge of the temple and, and the worship and the sacrifices and all that. And that was a full-time job. So, the Levites, it says in Numbers 18, verse 23 and 24, that they, they didn't get an allotment of land, but he says, instead, I have given the Israelites tithes 
which have been presented as sacred offerings to the Lord, to the Levites. It says here, notice that the, 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 the tithes of the Israelites were not for the Levites initially. They were actually a sacrifice to the Lord. So we know that from the beginning of the Bible, the narrative of God, that uh, part of our worship is giving back to him. It's being generous to, in, in response to what he has done for us. We give back the things that he's blessed us with, that we're a good steward. It's the same within the garden. God tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful, to multiply, to, to name the animals, to, to, to cultivate that, to be generous in that. And he's a generous God from the beginning until now. And so the original intent of this tithe, we've, we've kind of binded. And it's funny, we think it's 10%. And uh, if you just research, you could really get into some scholars arguing that it's maybe more so 20 to 30%. And I don't want to make you sweat. You're not like, oh boy, that's a lot of money. But I'm just trying to point out here that, that, um, that the way that we think about this is like the algebra, the trigonometry, the geometry. And we need to realize we're in, we're in the calculus now. Like, Jesus is calling us to be a more generous people than even before. And like I said, I'm not here to give you a number. Well, like you got to get 40% of all your, everything you make. What I'm here to say is we're never done in our spiritual formation in terms of generosity. The world we live in, the West, we have no shortage of things that we're trying to consume that we're trying to consume. So I'd say that it's extremely helpful for us to continually remember, how can I be more generous? How can I love people more? And how can I give more? How can I be more generous? And, and so I think the main question I want to ask you that I want you to wrestle with, and I hope you do actually wrestle with it, is what's my next step in being more generous? What's my next step in apprenticing Jesus in terms of generosity? What does that look like for me? Is it maybe you've never given to a local church and you, didn't, and you just haven't done that. Maybe you need to do that. Maybe you, you give infrequently and you're like, you know, I need to create a rhythm. Maybe you're in debt and you don't trust giving money to the church while you're in debt, but you need to be like, you know what? I need to trust God first with my first share. Maybe you have someone who's like a Levite who's working full-time for an organization or is across the country or is in America but doesn't have support and they need, they need support. Maybe they need, you, you, need to, you feel called to help them. Or maybe it's someone who's struggling right now in this time and they need a washer and a dryer or a, a rent paycheck. It, you, know, you can think of it. It's, there's so many opportunities for us. And what it does is it shows people the gospel. I know the gospel is not money, but the gospel is generosity. And generosity can be often be shown in America and the world we live in through money because money has power in other people's lives, which is why Jesus talks about it so much. So my job here is not to judge you, but I just want you to get thinking about this. What do the words of Jesus mean in my own heart? I think a good hypothetical for us is everybody's been receiving stimulus checks and maybe you haven't gotten yours yet, but whether it was 1200 or 2400 or how many, nine kids, it could be five grand, whatever, you know, and maybe you didn't really need that money. A hypothetical would be, would you give that money to someone if you knew that they would follow Jesus because of that? That would be a stepping stone to their um, coming before Jesus. Would you do it? Would you give that money away? What if it was $8,000? Would you do it? What, what if you have a kid and you know that you can actually, the amount of money that you give can help them love Jesus their entire life? Would you give, would you pay a million dollars? Would you pay a hundred thousand? How much would you pay? And we start to think about that. And it's not that I'm like looking for a specific number. What I'm saying is that do we ever think that, that our being generous can be a kingdom seed that we're sowing in the lives of others? In fact, it talks about this throughout the entire Gospels and in in a lot of Paul's letters. It's in 2 Corinthians, he says, hey, you sow a little bit, you're only going to get a little bit in return. You sow a ton, you're going to reap a ton. It's not prosperity gospel, like you're going to be more blessed, but it's that the more generous you are, the more that it affects people, the more people it touches. It's, it's the calling of the kingdom is to love those around us radically because we've been loved first. And so I think that whole like stimulus check is just an idea of like, oh, I've seen money. Would you be willing to give it away? 
the even deeper understanding of what it means to follow Jesus is would you give that money away if you knew that person was just going to squander it? I don't think I would. I'd be like, well, I'm going to give this something back. I'm going to invest it, whatever. That's a dumb investment. But you realize that that's what God did for us, right? That he, if you look in that, we can, you can read that on your own time. Luke 15 talks about the prodigal son. God gave his inheritance and we squandered it. And then we came back and we're like, I'm sorry. And what does he do? He, he opens his arms and he calls his son and he brings us back into his kingdom. And that's the gospel for all of us. And, and I think we need to remember that, that money we have is not really ours. That it's just a means, an opportunity for us to share the kingdom, to be generous because it's rooted in, in the gospel of Jesus. And, and in 2 Corinthians, it talks about that, that Jesus doesn't want us to be reluctant givers or in response to pressure, meaning I am not trying to pressure you here but that he loves a cheerful giver who gives cheerfully to him. And the reason why that matters is because the cheerfulness that we give is out of an outpouring of our understanding of the gospel. And that's why a mark of a mature follower of Jesus, one who is radically in love with him, him, is their ability to be generous, their amount of generosity, their level of generosity, because your heart and treasure, there they are. And if we understand the gospel and how God's been generous to us, we're much more willing to be generous to others because we want people to see the gospel through the way that we embody it, that we live it out, and that we give generously to people. And so I just want to ask you the question, what is my next step to being more generous? You don't just plateau and then coast. You need to be willing to be like, how can I give more than it hurts, but how can I give cheerfully? If I'm not giving cheerfully, what, what, am I, what am I struggling with in the gospel? Why am I, am I living based on works? Am I trying to work my way to God and Him love me? Or am I admitting or am I realizing that God has loved me before anything I could do? He loves me unconditionally, regardless of what I do. And that, that's so encouraging that I, I want to be the same. I want to be just as generous as He was to me. And that's the gospel. And that's, that's how we need to understand generosity. So I encourage you to think through that question this week as we process. And uh, if you read Luke, 15, it's a great story that will help you understand that. That generosity that God gives you, that's the gospel that's accessible to you and to all of us. Would you pray, Lord, it's for your generous heart. Lord, I just pray that we would be more generous. I pray that, Father, you would just give us moments to be generous, opportunities to be generous. Help us to, to just understand and remember your gospel and how generous you were for us. We love you and we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. We hope wherever you are, this message encouraged you to take your next step in your relationship with Jesus. For more information about Movement Church, including attending a worship experience, getting connected, or giving online, please visit movementcolumbus.com.